just like we had Lauren share her story uh, this morning, we're adding a new cool feature uh, to the church. On the back wall, in the back connect area, on the wall, there's a timeline um, that some people have already taken uh, initiative and started filling out. There's a timeline back there. So as we're walking through this series about seeing God's story played out throughout history, uh, we thought it'd be cool to be able to share our story, how we got here. What are the highlights? What are the important parts about our lives that make us who we are? Um, so like I said, there's a timeline back there up on the wall. There's markers. There's pens. Um, pretty much take the time. Any dates that are important to you, your birthday, uh, when you got married, when you came to Chicago, when you started coming to CF, when you got saved, anything you think is important to you, any of the milestone things, you know, when you graduated from school, any of the milestone moments uh, that are important to you. Um, like I said, there's pens, there's markers. Go in the back after the service. Uh, and fill it out. I think it'd be cool as we add our story, we can see how all of our stories interact, how we all got to this point, how we all got to here to CF in 2016. Um, so thank you, Amy, for putting that together. Uh, it's really awesome. And so I just gave her this idea for like, timeline, go. And she made it awesome and cool and uh, interactive. So make sure you go and do that. It's going to be up on the wall. It's going to be there for a while because we're going to be in this series for a while. Um, so that's a cool added element to what we're doing. This morning, we are going to be in Genesis 17 as we're walking through a story. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Genesis 17. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in a chair back behind, around you. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and take that and keep that as well. Um, so we're going to be in Genesis 17. Uh, before we get there, though, we have to do a little bit of background work to get us caught up uh, in some things that we've skipped over in Genesis 16. Um, and so before we do that, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, God, you are good, and you're good all the time. Uh, God, we thank you for this opportunity to get together and worship you and sing praises about who you are um, and what you've done for us. Lord, as we read through your stories, we walk through the story of what you have been doing, what you've been doing since the beginning of time, and how you're calling us back to yourself, how you're redeeming what has been broken. God, we are so thankful. So thankful that you're a God who cares about us. So thankful that you're a God who cares about what we're doing. And you invite us into, our, into that story. God, I pray that as we uh, read your word, as, as I preach, Lord, let nothing come from me that isn't from you. Um, God, you have a message for us this morning. You have uh, something for us to take away from the life of Abraham and Isaac. And so, God, I pray that you speak this morning. Let your Holy Spirit move in this place and do what it does best, change our lives. We pray all of these things because Jesus is good and big and awesome. Amen. So we're going to start in Genesis 17, but before we get there, uh, in Genesis 16, um, we see Abram, right? We left off last week with Abram and Sarai, and they had this promise from God. And God said, I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you a blessing. And so that way you can bless other people. And so the thing that we're going to focus a lot on this morning is this idea of descendants. Right, because we saw last week, Abram was talking to God and said, God, how, you keep promising me that you're going to do this, but I have no kids. And to not have kids in that day, to not have descendants, you were cursed. You were seen as someone who God hated, God despised. And so Abram says, God, when, when is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? And God continually has to reaffirm Abram, I'm going to take care of you. I have a plan. Don't worry. And so it's been 10 years since the last time God and Abram had this conversation, 10 years, Sarah is still barren. Abram still doesn't have any descendants. It's been 10 years. And so finally, they come up with a plan. Abram is 85 at this point. 
And they come up with a plan. Sarai says, look, Abram, I want you to take one of my servants. I want you to take one of my servant girls. I want you to take her as your wife. I want you, then you can have your son. Then you can have this descendant that God apparently forgot about. But this is a way we can make this happen. And it says in Genesis 16 that the, the servant that, he, that Sarai gives to Abram, her name is Hagar, and she's an Egyptian servant. So where in the world does she get an Egyptian servant? Well, last week we talked about how Abram and Sarai were in Canaan, in the land God had promised them, in that place where God said, Abram, I want you to take a walk, don't stop until I tell you, and when you stop, that's the land I'm going to give you. And then they were in that land, and a famine hit, they freaked out, and they went to Egypt. And right, we talked about how could it possibly be that Abram allows his wife, lies about her being his sister, allows her to be taken by Pharaoh, basically sells her, and everything's okay. But what we're going to see here is that everything isn't okay because consequences of those poor decisions is that when they left Egypt, they left with all the things they had acquired in Egypt, including a servant girl named Hagar. And it is through Hagar, Abram ends up sleeping with her, and she has a son. Through the consequences of not trusting God, he goes against what God has planned. He goes against the plan for the descendants, and he has a son with Hagar named Ishmael. And it's through Ishmael that we see another line, we see the line of Islam traces their way back to Abram. It's through Ishmael that we see a whole other nation born. Going forward, Abram will, he loves it, he loves Ishmael. And going forward, he's going to pray often, he's going to ask God, God, look, I have a son, let's just make him the one that was going to be the one about the descendants, let's make him the important one, it's already taken care of, we're good to go. And over and over again, God is going to say, no, Abram, I have a plan. I have a plan and it's going to be fulfilled in a different way. It's going to be fulfilled the way I want it fulfilled. Abram, clearly you need to be reminded of what's going on. Clearly you need to be reminded of what the plan is. And so we're going to pick it up in, in uh, chapter 17. The word's going to be on the screen, but we're going to do a lot of jumping this morning. So keep your finger in your Bible. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Says Abram, here's the plan. I'm going to make you into descendants. You are going to have generations upon generations upon generations. And while we're at it, Abram, your name is no longer Abram. Your name is Abraham. You see, Abram means noble father, important father, has ties to his dad. He was probably in a line of royalty from where he came from. It has ties to his past and from the family he came from. And God says, look, I want you to stop worrying about the past. I want you to stop worrying about what you came from and look to the future. Look to what I'm doing. And what I'm doing, Abraham, is making you into something. That's what his name means, father of many nations father of many nations. Abram, I'm going to transform you. I am going to make you, give you descendants upon descendants. 
His new name is in conjunction with his new role. His new identity. It's Abram, you're no longer Abram. Don't worry about that guy. Don't look at the past. Don't worry about where he came from. Look to what I'm doing. And so the basic promise of the covenant that he reiterates, that God reiterates here, is I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you descendants. And through both of those things, Abraham will be a blessing to others. He goes on in chapter 17 to say, look, Abraham, now that we have this covenant established, I am not going anywhere. I am going to take care of you. Even when you make poor decisions, even through things like sleeping with Hagar and having a son that way, even through making poor decisions, I'm with you. I've promised I'm going to be with you. And I want you to do something. I want you to set yourself apart. I want you and your descendants to be set apart and marked as different. And so going on in chapter 17, we see God establishes the, okay, anyone that is part of this covenant, anyone that is one of your descendants, Abraham, all the men that are your descendants need to be circumcised. You and all the descendants need to be circumcised. This is going to be something that is going to set you apart. This will be a tangible reminder that you are mine. Circumcision was not something new. This was not like God said, hey, guess what I just invented. Um, this was something that was, we have ceremonies, we have recordings of uh, ceremonies happening all over the ancient Near East of circumcision. So this wasn't something new and something totally foreign, but what this was was God saying, Abraham, there's a tangible physical reminder that you are different, that you are set apart, that you are mine. I want you and all of your descendants, and I'm going to keep it real simple. Any of your descendants who don't want to be circumcised, then they're out. But the ones that do, the ones that are circumcised, the ones that are your descendants, they will be, I will take care of them. I will remember them. They will be mine. I will be theirs. And while we're on the topic, Abraham, of making changes and covenants, let's talk about your wife. Skip down to verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you will not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Sarai means my princess. Again, right, she's the half-sister half of Abram, so it has to do with the family royalty, the family line, the family importance. Sarah means princess. It means universally. Through her, nations will be born. Kings will be born because of her. She is a, this new change in her name, this little wordplay that God does here, has a more universal feel and looks to the multitudes of generations that are going to come from her. So just like Abraham's name looks, stops looking at the past and looks to the future, so does Sarah's name. Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about what you came from. Look to what I'm doing. Look to what's going to happen because of you. Changing names in the Bible is important. It means something new has happened. God has stepped in and a new moment has happened. A new relationship has been formed. God has changed things. And not everyone gets a name change in the Bible. Not everyone who meets God gets their name changed. But when it does happen, it signifies something special. It signifies something important. If you look in the New Testament, you have, um, we are actually just studying this Thursday nights, 7 o'clock in the back. Gentlemen, uh, we have a men's group. All guys are invited, 7 o'clock on Thursdays. We're studying the book of Acts and how the church was formed. It's a really good night, right, Jim? It's awesome. Love it. Um, so we just got introduced. You, you haven't missed much. You only missed a couple of chapters. Jump in. Uh, we just got introduced to Saul. Saul was this Pharisee, this young Pharisee who was eager to take down these Christian rebels, and he's killing and capturing Christians left and right. And what we're going to see in like a week or two, spoilers, uh, is that he's going to meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. His name is going to change. He's going to go from Saul, the Christian killer, to Paul, 
the one who is going to change everything, the one who is going to plant churches all throughout the land, who is going to take the gospel to places it's never been. God says, Saul, you're no longer that guy. You're this guy. You're my guy. Another point in the New Testament, when Jesus is calling his disciples, and he calls a guy named Simon. And at one point he has a moment with Simon where he says, your name is no longer Simon. You're not just a fisherman. You're Peter. You're the rock. You are going to be important. You are going to be one of my chosen. You are going to help build the church. You see, name changes in the Bible were important. It signified leaving the old behind and looking to the new. And so now we have Abraham and Sarah. And so we have name changes. We have covenants. We have all these things happening. And in those verses, in 15 and 16, in the promises made about Sarah, this, for the first time, God says, your descendants are going to come through Sarah. Before it was, Abraham, you will have descendants. You will have nations. Now it's, it's going to come through Sarah. She is going to give birth to a boy. She is going to give birth to a boy. At this time, Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 89 years old. And God says, I'm going to give you a son. And how does Abraham respond? Look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He laughs. He falls on the ground, and he's just giggling. And I don't think this is one of those laughter where it's like, God, there's no way. This, this is not like sarcastic, yeah, okay, God, whatever you say. This is the laughter of, God, I can't believe how good and powerful and awesome you are. I can't believe that you would possibly do this. It's so amazing, it just makes me laugh to see the way your plan is in motion. At this time, like I said, Abraham is 99. He will be 100. Sarah will be 90 when Isaac is born. And even right after that, in verse 18, after God tells him this awesome thing he's going to do, even still, Abraham, being a dad, says, what about Ishmael? God, why, take care of Ishmael. He's, why won't you just find favor with him? He's, he's a good kid. He wants to take care of his son. He asks that God would bless his already existing son. And we see that God does take care of Ishmael. He does take care of Ishmael and his wife, or his uh, mother. He takes care of their descendants. He has a plan for them. But this plan, the plan, the line of promise, the line that is going to take descendants, that is going to take care of providing for us the chosen one, the anointed one, that is reserved. That is reserved for the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. In verse 19, it actually tells us his name. It says his name will be Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor and the Bible's not funny. God says, you're going to name him Isaac. My timing is perfect, Abraham. I promised you 25 years ago that I was going to take care of you. And even though Abraham makes all of these decisions, he's disobedient, he lies, he makes poor decision after poor decision, even through all of that, God continues to honor the promise he made. And so a year later, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Abraham finally has this chosen son. Abraham finally has the one. He finally has this boy. He gets to teach how to throw a football and change the oil on a car. He gets to have this kid and it's awesome, and everything's good. And every time he says, Isaac, he's got to have a smile on his face because he remembers that moment when God said, I am good, and I'm going to prove to you how good I am. I'm going to give you a son. How could anything possibly make, how could anything get better? How could anything, it's so good, everything is awesome, yay. 
I watch a lot of shows on Netflix. Usually, when all the characters are at peace and everything's cool and they like, have achieved some kind of milestone, that's when everything's about to get out of control crazy. That's the time where things are about to go really, really bad. So I want you to take your finger, I want you to skip over to chapter 22. We're jumping over a bunch, and there's a lot of good stories in here. But if we do every chapter, we're going to be in Genesis forever. So, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What? God, what are you doing? God, God tested Abraham? What does that even mean? God tested Abraham. What? This test, though, for Abraham is not, this is not a test for God's sake. This is not God saying, you know what? I wonder if Abraham's really a good dude. I'm going to test him. God knows Abraham's heart. He knows he is committed to him. He knows he loves him. This is a test for Abraham. This is not a test to lead Abraham. I'm going to see if I can make Abraham sin. I'm going to see if I can lead him into destruction. That's not what God does. God is good and just and loving. He does not do that. But this is a test for Abraham because it says after these things and all those pages that we flipped over, Abraham has seen some stuff. Okay? He had this relationship with God where he's praying back and forth and he's trying to save the city of Sodom from being destroyed and God ends up wiping it out and Abraham has to watch it. Um, Abraham has this interaction in chapter 20. He has this interaction with King Abimelech and if you read chapter 20 on your own time, and if you've been here and listening to these sermons, you'll read chapter 20 and say, hmm, I've heard this story before. It's because Abraham goes into the land where King Abimelech is in charge, and he says to his wife, hey, if anyone asks, pretend you're my sister, because that worked out really well the first time. It just repeats over and over, Abraham making poor decision after poor decision. His son is born. That's a big milestone moment. Abraham has had an experience. He has had things where God is shaping him and changing him. And now we get to this point where Abraham is tested. And it's not tested to sin, but this is Abraham is tested to see just how good God is, just how big God is, and just how strong Abraham's faith has become. God wants Abraham to realize, you're more powerful than you know. You and I have a deeper relationship than I think you even understand, Abraham. And so we're going to walk through this. I'm going to put you in a situation where you're going to see just how good I am and just how much, how strong your faith is. And so he says in verse 2, I want you to give up your son. Your only son is what God says. Now we all know, Abraham knows, God knows, that's not his only son. What about Ishmael? At this point, Ishmael has been sent away. Ishmael's not part of the family. Ishmael's not considered. I don't think he's sending Ishmael a birthday card. There's not any interaction here. Isaac is the only one. Isaac is the one of the promise. Isaac is the one the descendants are going to come from. So God says, I want you to take your only son, the one who I value, the one who I'm going to do things through, that son who you love, the son you have waited for, the one who reminds you of how good I am, the one whose name means he laughs, the one whose name, when you say it, reminds you of that day when I spoke to you and you laughed because of the idea that God was going to do something big, that son, I want you to kill him. 
I want you to kill him. And it's not just kill him, it's I want you to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. How does Abraham respond? Look at verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. There's no arguing, there's no pleading, there's no yelling, there's no fighting, there's no rebelling. Abraham gets up, he just responds to God and what God has told him to do. In the same way that when God called him and said, Abraham, he said, Abram, I want you to take a walk. I want you to pack up all your family. I want you to pack up everything you have. Leave this place where you are an important person and just take a walk into the desert and I'll tell you when to stop. In that same way, when he just said, okay, I'll go. We see the same kind of response here. Okay, God, I don't know what you're doing, but okay, I'm going to go. And so he packs everything up. He and his son and all the resources they need and two of his servants and they go on this trip. And when they get a little bit away and he sees the mountain up ahead, we see in verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. I and the boy will go worship and come back again. Some translations say, I and the boy will go and worship and we will come back. It's kind of inferred in the ESV and other translations that make it a little more clear. But Abraham's response is, we're going to go do this. We're going to come back. And so Isaac, being trained by his father, being one who understands what it means to worship God, he knows what he needs. They take all the resources. They take the wood. They have the torch for the fire. They have the knife. Isaac looks around and says, Hey, Dad, we're missing something. Look at verse 7 and 8. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Dad, what, what are we doing? We're missing something. I think between his answer to Isaac, between what he tells his servants, I think Abraham trusted that God would provide. I think at this point, Abraham knows Isaac is the one that descendants are going to come through. Isaac is the chosen one. Isaac is the one that God wants. He also knows for a fact, God told me to kill Isaac. God wants me to kill Isaac on an altar. He knows both of those things are true. And I don't think Abraham quite knew how to reconcile them, but he said, both of these things are true. God's in control. God's going to do something. God promised to take care of you and take care of your descendants. These things seem to be at odds, but God is in control. And so they go up to this mountain. And you know what? I'm just going to read it because the Bible is way more interesting than anything I can say. When they came to the place, we're in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. When Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called 
called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Abraham binds his son to this altar, builds this altar, straps his son to it, has the knife ready to kill his son, and God steps in. God steps in and provides a substitute. He steps in. There still needs to be a sacrifice. There still is a sacrifice that happens here, but God steps in and provides a substitute for it. God steps in and declares, he says, I know you are committed to me, Abraham. I know you didn't, because you didn't withhold your son, your only son. Abraham, you showed great love and great devotion. And I'm going to reward you for that. I'm going to take care of you. I promised I would take care of you. And God provides a substitute. You see, when he was Abram, he was, like we said last week, he was a work in progress. And even as he's Abraham, he is still kind of messy. He's still kind of rough around the edges. And over time, God used the events of his life. God used the things that he experienced, things like this, to shape him and to mold him and teach him and strengthen him and make him into the man he had made him to be. And God's doing the same thing with us. He does the same thing through us, through our lives, through, our, through the things that we experience. And really, I think, as we look at the life of Abraham, a lot of it comes down to one simple question. Did Abraham trust God? All these different moments he has where he has to choose what to do, how to follow, how to listen, it comes down to, Abraham, do you trust God? You know, as I was preparing this sermon this week, and I was looking, at just even these last two weeks, wrestling with the text of Abraham and Abram, this idea of did you trust God, do you trust God, is a question that has been bouncing around in my brain. And I think for me, in my head and in my heart, yeah, I trust God. I know he's in control, I know he's good, I know he's going to take care of me. But in the practical, in the day-to-day, in the way that I stress and worry and try and control every aspect of everything and as I, as I worry about how we're going to get small groups started and how we're going to reach into Roscoe Village and, and connect with a community of people that don't really want to talk about Jesus, and I stress about all these different things and how are we going to make sure that people are welcome here and how are we going to do all these different things as a church, and I stress and I worry and I freak out. You can ask my wife. It comes down to practically, do I trust God? And I don't think I live, in, I don't think I live into that on a daily basis. I think I struggle with that. I think, like Abraham, I think there are moments, yeah, there are moments where God says something and I can go. And then there are moments where it's all on me, or at least I think it's all on me, and I put it all on me, and it's overwhelming and exhausting. The question of do you trust God is a big one. It's do we trust God enough to speak into the moments of our lives? Is it, do we trust God enough in that moment where somebody at work, somebody you go to school with, somebody in your family knows you're a Christian and asks you questions? Are you willing to trust God enough to say yes? Yes, and, and actually live into that and actually have that conversation that's awkward and hard. Do we trust God enough to say, when he says, seek and you will find me? If you knock, the door will be open. If you come looking for me, I will show up. Do we trust him enough to actually get into word, actually read and see what he has to say? Do we trust him enough to actually pursue him, get into community, join us longer, be part of a community, and seek after God? Do we actually trust him enough? Do we actually trust God enough with our finances? Do we actually trust him enough to say, God, I'm going to make a budget. God, I'm going to spend wisely. God, I'm going to give. 
do we actually trust God? And not just give, sac- you know, not just give because we have to, but give sacrificially, give joyfully. God, I'm going to serve because I trust you. I trust that I can give things up. Do we actually trust him enough to give back to God, even our time? The most expensive currency we have in today's world, our time. Do we trust God enough to give him our time? The season of Lent begins on this Wednesday, uh, with, with Ash Wednesday. The season of Lent, for those of you who don't have experience with it, really it's a time kind of like Advent that we spend before Christmas, where Advent was all about getting us ready, getting us prepared for Jesus' arrival. And thinking about what does it mean that Jesus came into this earth and he's coming again. And with Lent, it's, we focus on and we think about and prepare our hearts. What does it really mean? How does it affect our day-to-day lives that Jesus died on the cross and rose again? How does that actually affect the way that we do our lives, the way we work, the way we go to school, the way we are spouses, the way that we are siblings? How does that actually affect us? Lent gives us an opportunity. It gives us a time where we can set aside time and give it to God and say, and focus on what he has done. And so traditionally during Lent, people give something up. It's a good conversation starter for your religious friends. It's always the, hey, it's Lent. What are you giving up? And it's a fun little um, way, instead of talking about the weather, to have conversations with people. Traditionally, people will give something up. They fast from something. They give something up and use that time, that energy, that thought, that emotion, and give it and focus it on God. As a church community, as us, as CF, during this Lent season, here's what I'm proposing. I'm not declaring, I'm not demanding. It's what I'm proposing. I want us to commit to giving up 10 minutes every day. Starting this Wednesday, through Easter, giving up 10 minutes a day, and letting that time be time focused on God. That can look any kind of different ways for any number of different people. It can be 10 minutes of prayer time. It can be read the devotionals that are getting written every week by people in the church. Use those as as part of your 10 minutes. It can be journal if you like to journal. It can be read some of the passages and pray. It can be spend 10 minutes in worship. However you want to break that 10 minutes up, that's on you. But 10 minutes. 10 minutes. We're skipping a lot of passages, right? We just started, we started in Genesis 16, we ended in Genesis 22. There's a lot in there that you can spend that 10 minutes reading. 10 minutes every day. For those of you, there are some of you in this room that 10 minutes seems totally overwhelming and hard and you can't focus for 10 minutes. Break it down into two minutes. Break it down into two or three minutes at a time. I'll encourage you, 10 minutes straight is good and it'll be good for your soul. But if you need to work and baby steps into it, awesome. Do that. It's not about, I have to be here for 10 minutes. I have to be alone in a room in the dark with me and my, just my Bible for 10 minutes. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying take 10 minutes of your life every day and focus it on God. There are some of you on the opposite side of that who spend a lot of time with God every day. Awesome. You get to add 10 more minutes to that. You can go deeper into whatever you're studying, or you can take that 10 minutes and pray for those of us in the church who have trouble focusing on God for 10 minutes a day. However you want to do that, that's fine. But 10 minutes every day. So for Lent, we have um, in the back right now, there's a, there's a sheet. It's a full sheet of paper. It's kind of an introductory, what is Lent? What does that mean? And it gives you some ideas and some tips on how to, how to do this 10-minute thing. Um, like I said, we're also going to have the devotionals every week. Starting next Sunday, we're gonna have, I'm going to have a week's worth of different prayers you can pray on each day to help you kind of focus for those 10 minutes. 
I'm going to try and provide, we're going to try and provide as many resources as we possibly can to help you with this. Because the idea of this is we're walking through the story of what God is doing. The idea is let's focus on God 10 minutes every day. Do we trust God enough to say, my life is busy and crammed. How in the world will I fit in 10 minutes? Do we trust him enough to say, I can give him 10 minutes and let him move in those 10 minutes? Lent is about preparing our minds and our hearts and taking a season of time and redirecting it to Christ. I want us to try and do that 10 minutes at a time. See, when God wanted Abraham to show him the ultimate demonstration of his love and his commitment to God, God asked Abraham for his son, for his only son whom he loved. And when God wanted to demonstrate to us how deep he loves us, how committed he is to us, how much he cares about us, he sent us his son, his only son, his son whom he loves deeply to die for us in our place. And just like as God sent in that moment, he sent in a ram to substitute for Isaac and let there be a, there was still needed to be a sacrifice and he sent in a substitute in Isaac's place, so he sent Jesus to be a substitute for us in our place for our sins on our behalf. Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. We heard in Lauren's story this morning, this is how, God, how good God is. We didn't even plan this. God provides. It's what he does. He is a dad who loves you and provides. He will provide. And I'm not even talking about physical, material stuff. Yeah, he might bless you with money and power and stuff. That's not what we're talking about here. God will provide for you. He will give you life and life abundantly. He's got riches and joys and pleasures and awesomeness and water slides in heaven that are way beyond anything we can imagine. The things that we have waiting for us, the things that the Christian has waiting for us, to get to experience God's presence, to get to be with him, far exceeds anything we can have here. But it comes down to the question, do you trust him? Do you trust him enough to say, God, I believe that I need you. I believe that I am a sinner, and I believe that you hold the keys to eternal life, that it is through you that I can find eternal life, that I can find my identity, that I can find rest, that I can find purpose in this life, and that I can be one of your children. Do you trust him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for, God, the way you move, the way you've moved in our lives, the way you've moved throughout history. These times and these moments where you've shown us these glimpses of how good you are, how awesome you are. These times where you've shown us these glimpses and these moments of that you haven't forgotten the promise you made, that you promised you would send one to put an end to sin, and you continually remind us you haven't forgotten that. God, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for sending your son to come and give us new life by taking on our sin in our place, dying on the cross for us. God, as we continue our morning of worship here, Lord, let these things, let our songs, let our actions, let our conversations, let this time be a sweet sacrifice to you, be something, an aroma that smells wonderful to you, one that gives you joy because, God, we find joy in you. We love to sing your praises. We love to worship you because you are good and awesome. You will provide. You have provided, and you will continue to because it's who you are, and we're so thankful for that. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.